15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast through your favourite podcast distributor, no doubt. My name is Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me, as always, is astronomer at large, Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Ta-da. Hi, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm Hi. quite well. My third week of isolation. It's uh, Although I, I've had to go out to do work on occasion, I spent eight hours driving a truck last Friday mm. uh, between a shop and a church. Believe it or not, our church, because we can't have services anymore, has turned into a massive storeroom. <laughs> oh, of course. Well, that's what happens, yeah, when you've got space to spare. Yep, turn it into a storeroom. You should mm. see my, the study that I'm sitting in at the moment. Yeah, that's exactly uh, what it is. <laughs> my wife refuses to come in here because she said it's, a, it's an absolute mess, and I... I yeah, well, I'm you're starting probably, to agree with her. Yeah, probably agree. I do too. <laughs> uh, now, this is... Um, this is this is episode one hundred and ninety nine, Fred. Oh, that's astonishing. Yeah. Will we make will we make it to two hundred? Who that knows? Depends on all sorts of things. Yeah. Check uh, in next week, folks. Notwithstanding a global pandemic. Mm. So anyway, I, I'm confident we'll make it. I hope so too. Mm. Now today, Fred, uh, we're we're talking about a possible event. A possible event involving maybe two asteroids in another solar system. They might have annihilated each other. I love astronomy. We could have seen something that might have happened at some time. We don't know when. Uh, <laughs> that's astronomy. Yeah, that's why. That's astronomy in a nutshell. It is. <laughs> uh, we're and also, it's not there anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, we're also going to look at the 30th anniversary of Hubble, which um, by the time this episode is released will have uh, been celebrated. Uh, but 30 years, I, I, was, I actually was staggered when I uh, read that headline. I thought, no, nah, it can't be. But yes, it is. And um, some questions from our audience. Brian has uh, done a bit of a follow-up on our discussion about the Mercury mission that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. He's a little concerned that we might have got our wires crossed and turned everything upside down. So we're going to try and clarify that. You are right and you are wrong, Brian, as it turns out. <laughs> or you are wrong and you are right. Either way, could be two asteroids. <laughs> just, to, just to, just to, um, you know, make Brian feel at home. I'm right and I'm wrong as well. There you are. <laughs> and uh, Alistair has um, come up with some ideas on the expansion theory of the universe, which we've talked about many times. It's continuing to expand at an accelerating rate, um, but are there variables? So we'll, we'll look into that and plenty more on this edition of Space Nuts. Now, Fred, let's talk about this possible event that might have happened involving two potential asteroids in another solar system far, far away. Uh, indeed, we, um, we, we should. Um, I'm just conscious that we might have a bit of background noise at the moment because I forgot to shut the door. Uh, <laughs> so, so well, never mind. No, say uh, hi to so, Marnie for me. Uh, oh, well, yeah. <laughs> well, everyone knows Marnie now because she was on uh, one of our recent programs. That's right, she was. Hmm. So, go and shut the door. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm treating this like live radio. You know that, don't you? Uh, of course. Well, that's, that's the way I operate. That's the, the way we should do it. That's mm-hmm. right. Um, so, yes, a really interesting piece of work that, that actually has quite a long history, uh, and um, it, it uh, you know it's one of these stories that has had various levels of excitement throughout its career. Uh, it, it's about um, a, a, a disc of material around a star whose name is, it's usually pronounced Fomalo. Uh, It's spelled F-O-M-A-L-H-A-U-T, and it is in the southern hemisphere. Uh, It's a star very familiar in our skies down here. But um, about, uh, I think it's kind of 20 years ago or something, um, observations were made of this star that revealed that it had a ring of material around it. Um, but the, in other words, the, um, <clears throat> the, the, uh, the residue of what we call a protoplanetary disk. This is how we believe planets are formed. St- um, gas and dust clouds coll- collapse. Yeah. Uh, in The central region becomes the star. And because of rotation, you get this disk of material swirling around the star. And that is called the pr- protoplanetary disk. And that's what the planets form in. Um, and uh, in fact, the ALMA uh, space, the, the ALMA radio telescope, the uh, Atacama Large Millimeter Array, which is in northern Chile, uh, <clears throat> has made a, a, almost a, a big business of finding pl- protoplanetary disks around other stars. Uh, sadly, ALMA is closed down at the moment because of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, but uh, we've seen many of these examples of, of planetary systems in the formation. So go b- back to Fomalo. Uh, it was discovered, uh, in fact, I believe this discovery might have been made by the Hubble rather than uh, rather than uh, ALMA, but th- this is going back um, several years, or virtually two decades, mm. um, and it was discovered to have this this ring of material around it. But in 2004, um, uh, it was discovered that there was a planet uh, very close to this ring, sort of on the inner edge of the ring, uh, and uh, ob- observations showed us this planet rotating around the uh, around the star it actually um you know it offered puzzles from the word go because um there were things that uh, that that seemed a bit weird about it uh, one of them was that the, the the planet looked as though it was too big to be where it was in the sense that if it was as big as it was, it should be disturbing this ring of material, ah, yes, uh, of probably course. putting a gap into it. Mm. And th- there was no sign of that at all. Uh, and then uh, another problem came up when... Um, th- so, so you know, the idea of from what was seen at first was you've got a big planet going around a star. It must be... It's big enough to be a super gas giant. It's a large planet, uh, which should be uh, very strong in the infrared region of the spectrum. So scientists tried to image this object in the infrared. Um, and, you know, it, 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 if it was something like Jupiter or uh, uh, larger than Jupiter, you'd get uh, a strong infrared signal. Uh, but actually, this star was completely invisible in the infrared. There was nothing there. Oh. Um, so um, that sort of made people wonder what it was that they were seeing. And so over the, the, the you know, the last 
a decade or so, uh, it has been imaged uh, several times by the Hubble telescope. And uh, in particular, 2006, 2008, 2010, 2012, 2014. And what we've seen is this object just getting bigger and bigger and fainter and fainter. Uh, and now, da-da, it's disappeared altogether. And so the interpretation of this, as you said, it's full of might-have-beens and maybes and things of that sort. Uh, but the, uh, the interpretation is that what we've been seeing is actually a clump of dust, a, a large dust cloud, which has been orbiting uh, on the inner edge of this ring, but doesn't have enough mass to disturb it, and is now dissipating. And in fact, is now dissipated to the extent that it's in, in, invisible. Uh, there's a lot of physics involved with this. I'm totally oversimplifying the story, Andrew. Oh, but good. that is the, is the <laughs> upshot. Um, uh, it's work from, that's been done at the University of Arizona, and uh, their view is that uh, this, you know, this this planet was never there in the first place. We've been observing uh, a pile of debris. Where did the pile of debris come from? That is the sixty-four thousand dollar question. And and the the or in the case of space nuts, a sixty-four cent question. <laughs> or a, the sixty-four trillion light year question. That's yeah, the maybe. Um, the answer seems to be, uh, and the physics sort of works out, that if you had two large asteroids, sort of several hundred kilometres in diameter, in orbit around uh, around Fomalo, the, the star, uh, and there was a collision, then this is exactly the result that you would get. Uh, so the interpretation now is what we're seeing is the results of a, a bingle between two pretty big asteroids that probably wiped themselves to pieces. Now, we, we know, um, once again, from planetary, uh, the, our understanding of planetary origins, that the, um, part of the process involves these protoplanets, which are l large objects. Actually, I think protoplanets are usually, or planetismals are usually considered to be bigger uh, than these asteroids might have been. Um, because you've got to account for the amount of dust that you see the length of time it takes to dissipate and, and all that sort of thing. But that uh, seems to be uh, the current answer of um, why we have seen this planet that is not a planet and is now no longer there anyway, uh, a collision between two asteroids. So we, we started out thinking it was a gas giant, then we started thinking that it was probably a rocky planet the size of Earth, and now we think it's neither, and it's two asteroids that smashed into each other over a parking space. Yes, very likely. That's probably the... Uh, well, you know, in a sense, that's right, because they were both trying to be in the same stable orbit around the star. So yeah. uh, think of that as a parking space, and you've got exactly the analogue that you've suggested. You see, this is why you're on the radio, Andrew, because um, you... You go straight to these yeah. beautiful examples. I, I always find the, the lowest common denominator. <laughs> I do. Uh, but it works for me. Um, if, you, if you want something more intellectual, uh, don't I'm listen not, to space. I'm not nuts. your man. <laughs> mm. well, so, all right. But I, I'm, I, they've, they've uh, put up a, a great um, series of photos to show what happened since 2004. And, and you can easily see why. Initially, you'd think it was a planet. It's big, it's circular, it's bright, and but over time, it sort of just fades away. away like smoke, doesn't it? 
Yeah, that's right. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Uh, this is all, um, there are a few news sources that have this out, but you can go to the story on the Hubble Space Telescope website, uh, spacetelescope.org. Okay, very good. Take all right. Yeah. Uh, well, if they've got it solved, we may not need to talk about this one again, but they could change their <laughs> minds. They could change oh, their minds. There'll be something else, Andrew, don't you worry. For sure. <laughs> You're listening to mm-hmm. Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson, episode 199. Let's take a break from the show and hear a word or two from our sponsor, Grammarly. Now, I have to say I'm a big fan of Grammarly uh, because I've been using it for a few years now. Very helpful for authors, but uh, also really good for everyday life. They've saved me on a few occasions, uh, particularly with spelling, but also with a few issues that uh, didn't quite make sense. Uh, It's built by linguists and language lovers, and uh, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors, so you don't have to do it yourself. Word by word, day by day. (laughs) You can uh, easily copy and paste any English text into Grammarly's online text editor or just install uh, Grammarly's free browser extension for Chrome, Safari, Firefox and quite a few others. Grammarly's algorithms flag potential issues in the text and suggest context-specific corrections for grammar, spelling and vocabulary. Uh, Grammarly explains the reasoning behind each correction so you can make an informed decision about whether and how to correct an issue. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and nearly anything else you write on the web. Uh, For you, the listener of Space Nuts, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. So if you'd like to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash spacenuts. Again, that's getgrammarly.com slash spacenuts to download Grammarly for free and let them know you came from us. Uh, I'll include the link in the show notes as well. And now, back to Space Nuts. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. And hello to all our YouTube followers. We have a very solid following on YouTube these days. I love the way they do it, Fred. 1.21 thousand we have. Oh, good. 1.21 thousand followers on our Mm -hmm. YouTube channel. Could be... 1,210. Could be. Uh, <laughs> YouTube.com slash C slash Space Nuts. You can hear all our back catalogue. I've always wanted to say that. Our back catalogue on YouTube is there. You can press play and just let them run. There's a play all option. I love that. But you get. To, I think you get to listen to them backwards. And I'm not talking from <laughs> episode 199 down to one. I think they just play backwards. If you, I don't know. Uh, no, it's good. Um, it's really good. Uh, so thank yeah. you for following us on YouTube or uh, Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or where, wherever it is you, um, you listen to Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to talk about uh, an old friend. Uh, we've already mentioned mm. the Hubble Space Telescope, but um, I was stunned and amazed uh, when you sent me the idea of uh, discussing this, that Hubble turns 30 on the 24th of April, which may or may not have already happened depending on when people listen to this uh, podcast. But 24th of April, uh, so it uh, all began in 1990. It did. Uh, and 
you know, it was very exciting, of course, because uh, we'd been in the world of astronomy, we'd been waiting for this for a long time. Um, and it, it was delayed, of course, because of the Challenger disaster in 1986. The telescope was supposed to be launched, I think, in 1986. But in the aftermath of the Challenger disaster, it was uh, it was delayed until the 24th of April. Uh, the story, I'm sure you and I have spoken about this before, that we were uh, privileged in the world of astronomy to have uh, daily updates from the commissioning of the telescope. It entered, uh, it was launched on the 24th of April, entered orbit uh, shortly after that, or the final orbit took a little while, and it also uh, started then a process of commissioning. And we were all uh, kind of waiting for these gorgeous images which never came um, because the it turned out that there was this error with the, the mirror, the, the world's mm. most perfect mirror made to the wrong prescription, um, which was eventually corrected in uh, 1993. And you so know how hard it is to get an optometrist into orbit. That is just not easy to do. <laughs> it was um, effectively a contact lens that was yes. put into orbit. Uh, but that's right, yeah. it's uh, uh, the, the, the space shuttle mission that did that was, I think, one of the great feats of all time because the Hubble is actually in quite a high orbit if I remember rightly it's about 600 kilometers wow. which was certainly at the at the um, extreme end of the the shuttle space shuttles range of operation um, anyway that's the the, the backstory uh, what we now have of course is uh, 30 years of fantastic um, work, uh, not just in imaging, but in spectroscopy and all the other, um, you know, clever bits of science that astronomers do to, to, to um, probe the universe. But um, we've We've got this now, this huge, you know, talking of back catalogues, <laughs> Hubble's got a back catalogue that makes the space not one like peanuts. There you yeah, go. There's an yeah. allegory well, for you. You could get a job on radio <laughs> jokes like that. I could get <laughs> yeah, just keep don't don't give up your day job. No. That's always, always the answer. Um, so uh, I was asked, um, I was very honoured to be asked by the ABC, the Australian Broadcasting Commission, to choose my top ten Hubble images, which I did. Wow! Uh, and uh, they're now on the uh, ABC's website. Um, and I thought we, you know, just to, very quickly, it might be nice just to go through them and tell you why I think they're exciting. Um, if you if you think that is appropriate to, to oh, it's do, it's absolutely appropriate, Fred. And um, people could probably um, find this website and look through them while they're listening to the podcast. And it's on the abc.net.au/slash/science page or slash, slash news. news. Slash slash science. News, slash science. And right. yep. uh, you'll, you'll find the story there or just do a search for it. I think if we just give the uh, the title Hubble Space Telescope Turns 30 in your search engine, you should find it and put Fred Watson's name in there and it'll turn up. The web crawlers have probably found that already. Already. Uh, and and I, I think a lot of people will recognise these images. They have become famous. A lot of them. Yeah, they're, they're, they're iconic, absolutely. Um, so I, I, what I tried to do, they've actually come out in a slightly different order from what I selected them because I was st strictly in distance order, but that's all right. The, um, I have no problem with the fact that they're just a little bit uh, changed because it makes for artistic uh, um, beauty is probably the word, uh, or completeness. How's that? Yes. Uh, but we started off with Jupiter. There's a marvellous image of Jupiter, which was taken um, actually, I think, I think in 2016, 
2016 uh, as part of a series of images that were in preparation of the Juno spacecraft, which is currently in orbit around Jupiter. But this is Hubble at its best because it combines a visible light image which shows the richness of the detail in the cloud belts, which of course we're seeing in even more detail now from the Juno spacecraft. But Hubble's view shows the whole planet, all the cloud belts, a great red spot there looking very red and a little bit less great than it used to be, but I think that's stabilized now. But because Hubble has this extraordinary capability in the ultraviolet region of the spectrum, which actually won't be replaced when it uh, finally, uh, you know, when, it, when its demise comes about. About. We will lose that access in detail to the ultraviolet sky. Uh, because of that, um, there is superimposed on this image of Jupiter, we've got the northern aurora, uh, the north uh, aurora around the north pole of Jupiter, which emits strongly in the ultraviolet. We can see them very clearly. It's an amazing image, uh, which caught my eye as one of the iconic ones. And perhaps the, the most iconic of all the Hubble images, uh, the famous Pillars of Creation image, which uh, was made very early in the piece. It's the central, central part of the Eagle Nebula. Uh, that has been repeated with a new camera that uh, the, the telescope was fitted with a few years, well, actually several years ago. Mm. So we've got this detailed picture of these three pillars of dust, which contain embryonic stars at their tips but this is now combined uh, and in some browsers you might be able to flick across and uh, you know move your cursor across and you, you can uh, switch between the two images yes. it's now combined with an, an infrared image oh um, wow which... look at that so on, you know, <laughs> if, you, if you're looking at the left hand version of the image you see the pillars uh, the dust clouds and a few stars but if you slide right it just Changes the picture entirely. It is a, that's very clever. Um, it, it may not work with all browsers. I noticed uh, with no, a different browser I'm using, that sometimes I'm using use it. Chrome, so it works with Chrome. Yeah, and it works with Firefox too. Mm. Uh, but um, the, uh, the yeah, the, so the infrared image essentially infrared light penetrates the dust, uh, and so what you see is these uh, is these uh, you know these outlines uh, of the dust clouds. Um, with uh, with the, the the you know almost like a ghostly view of them, uh, and you can see the newborn stars at their tips uh, yes. in certainly in in some of them. But what also is clear with this is that the the background dust uh, has almost been swept away, and you've got this glittering background of stars there behind the uh, the, the pillars. Great stuff. It is and very nicely done. And it is, it is one of the iconic images uh, from Hubble. Uh, I think most people will recognise, yeah. Next one, Fred. It is the, uh, is, is, it's just a star field, but I love this because it, it kind of reminds me of why I did astronomy in the first place. It's actually uh, the, the central region of a very rich, uh, what's called an open cluster, a uh, fairly young cluster of stars. This is a big one. It's got kind of 10,000 stars in it. Mm. Um, but it's, uh, so you've got all these lovely different colored stars, but you can also see right through it to distant galaxies, okay. which are in the in the background there. Uh, it's about 13,300 light years away. Very much, um, uh, you know, very much a, 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 a Hubble product at its best. Absolutely crisp imaging showing a kind of cross section through this, um, through this uh, open cluster. Then there's one of my favorites, <clears throat> this is actually on the front cover of the US edition 
combination of, uh, well, exploding stars and um, invisible planets. Mm. And it's the star uh, V838 Monocerotis, uh, usually abbreviated to V838 Mon. Uh, and uh, it, this is not, uh, you know, it looks like... Um, uh, a star embedded in a cloud of dust. That's what it is. But the cloud of dust that you're seeing is illuminated um, really in an unusual way because this star had an outburst um, a, a few years ago, 2002. It sent out this kind of pulse of light. Uh, it got to, I think it's, you know, a million times brighter than the sun or something like that. It was colossal, yeah. uh, but brighter than the sun uh, intrinsically. Um, and so what you have is this expanding shell of light which illuminates the dust cloud, um, almost like, uh, so as you watch it over time, it changes. Uh, it's almost like uh, computer tomography. It's getting slices through the, the, through the dust cloud. Um, then the next one I chose was M81, Messier 81, which is this perfect spiral galaxy. Uh, it's the most beautiful spiral in the sky. I think it's in the Northern Hemisphere in the constellation of Ursa Major. Um, perfect spiral arms, a perfect um, disk of material. Uh, I just think that's elegance personified in terms yes. of galaxies. Um, and then uh, really looking much further out into space uh, to a distance of 4 billion light years, this is a cluster of galaxies that's called Abel 370. It's a very rich cluster. It's just in the same way that the, uh, the open cluster of stars dazzles the eyes. This one dazzles the eyes, but with galaxies rather than stars. Mm. But it's important because we've got all these um, uh, little arcs of light, which are the lensed images, gravitationally lensed images of galaxies in the far background. Uh, a really amazing image, which I am very fond of. Once again, that's actually in, in the book. It's one of the pictures we used. Yeah. Uh, then uh, a, a, a nebula with the memorable name of LHA 120N150, uh, that uh, nebula is uh, in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Um, it's not particularly spectacular. It is a cloud of gas. It looks a little bit like a butterfly because of the dark dust lane in its middle. I thought uh, it looked what like I really... a Portuguese man of war, to be honest. <laughs> well, um, yeah, it, it, in fact, I suppose the butterfly is upside down, so it probably does look more like a Portuguese man of war. Yeah, uh, but what I like, again, is the fact that this is embedded on a, a lovely field of stars, it but it's got four bright ones surrounding it in a perfect parallelogram, uh, which for some reason reminded me of Art Deco jewellery. Mm. Uh, it's got that look about it of symmetry that the, that era looked uh, loved. Uh, moving on, another perfectly symmetrical thing, this is the Einstein cross, or one of the Einstein crosses. Uh, what you've got here is a bright point of light with four um, sort of similarly bright points of light around it in this perfectly symmetrical quintet. Uh, and it looks like, you know, oh, we've got this quintet of five stars. Why are they like that? But actually, it's not. Once again, this is due to, uh, to, to gravity, to Einstein's uh, relativity. Uh, what's in the middle is a galaxy, um, and the four uh, images that surround it are actually four images of a very distant quasar, which is almost directly behind the galaxy. Oh, OK. Uh, so the, the light is lensed. Um, we... I remember we got very excited about this sort of thing back in the 70s and 80s when they were first starting to be found. Not not so much perfect crosses like this, but pairs of quasars. Uh, the, the reason why you can tell 
apart from the fact that theory works. But the reason, the, the, the way you can tell that this is the same quasar that you're looking at, and quasars are the delinquent cores of young galaxies, very bright in light and radio emission, uh, but they vary. And so uh, you can see these things varying up and down in brightness. Mm. But because those four images have all taken a slightly different path, uh, the light has taken a slightly different path around the lensing galaxy, they're out of sync with one another. So you see the same up and down traces in brightness, but they're actually staggered. Um, and that's the kind of clinching proof that you're looking at the same object because its, it's brightness is going up in the same up, up and down in the same way uh, but with the you know slightly out of phase because each one of these has taken a different path past the galaxy Fascinating. That's yeah, it's, a, it's a really amazing image too to yeah, and to think you're only looking at what, what two things technically uh, but there's five separate parts yeah. of the image yeah that, that, that's right mm. uh, so um the next one is uh, another very famous uh, set of images, the exploding star, the, um, the supernova 1987A. Uh, when Hubble came online in 1990, it had faded back to uh, much lower brilliance than it had in 1987. This is in the Large Magellanic Cloud. But the Hubble, with its exquisite imaging qualities, could actually reveal the details of the remnant. And once again, we've got this sliding cursor uh, arrangement here. And and I, I need to, I was going to do this at the end, but I'll do it now. Um, put up a big thank you to the person who actually wrote this website and prepared it. And that's Janelle Whirl, who's part of the ABC's science unit. Uh, she did all the, you know, the, the arrangement of these images. And it's thanks to her that we've got this lovely sliding cursor view of the supernova remnant uh, showing uh, what looks like actually uh, the, the central region is, is, a, is a blob surrounded by a ring of material. And what's happening here is we're seeing the shock wave from the explosion hitting uh, a cloud of debris that was mm. emitted by the star before the explosion took place. So this uh, celestial fireworks in a big way. Yeah, it's spectacular. Uh, and finally, the last one is the extreme deep field, which is looking back in time, almost the full history of the universe, probably 13.2 billion years of the 13.7 billion year history. We see back to these um, uh, infant galaxies, the little ragged blobs of light, which have not yet got the beautiful spiral structure that some of the later ones have. Mm. Uh, so it's a very deep, it's using the uh, imaging qualities of the Hubble to make a very deep image uh, back uh, in time, almost to the birth of the universe. Extraordinary stuff. It is rather. Um, I have a weird question for you, Fred. Who owns these photos? Uh, so they yes they they actually are NASA and ESA the two agencies that run the the telescope, uh, but um, they are freely available as with all NASA images. All you need to do is credit them, and that's what we do all the time. Mm, yeah, oh, they're fantastic. Uh, we might just uh, put that link on our website so people can um, have a look at these while they're listening to the podcast. Uh, I think that would be the way to do it, and yep. they can just scroll down and slide across those two photos that have got alternative um, viewpoints. 
but yep. yeah, great job, great job. Um, and w- once again, thanks uh, to Janelle from the ABC to, to mm. for, for first of all inviting me to do it, and secondly putting it all together. It's a great website. Yes, and of course uh, Hubble coming towards the end of its um, its life and will be replaced by the James Webb Telescope, which, as we've discussed before, has been delayed, but it promises to take all of this uh, research to a whole new level, doesn't it? I think that's right, yes. Mm. It's still due to launch next year. Okay. Well, we wait with bated breath. Fingers uh, crossed. Take a look at these images from Hubble, some of the greatest photos uh, of the universe you will ever see. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, a big hello and thank you to our patrons. We were asked uh, some time ago uh, from the audience how they can support Space Nuts and that led to us creating a Patreon account, patreon.com slash space nuts, where you, the listener, can uh, choose to put a few dollars in our tin. It's optional. So um, thank you to those who have certainly done that um, with... um, uh, enthusiasm and we, we we love you for it and of course as a patron you get bonus material uh, you get uh, the commercial free access and you get uh, early access to the podcast on on the weeks where we can actually record it early enough for you to get early access but uh, yeah we do appreciate your support thank you for being a patron if you'd like to be a patron or at least check out the option patreon.com slash space nuts now, Fred, we've got some questions to tackle, uh, and um, you've been a very naughty boy, it seems. Uh, Brian Brian Stevens has uh, emailed us. Hi, Nuts. Fred is usually amazingly good at, at explaining complex scientific theories and occurrences in simple, easy-to-understand language. That's because he's talking to me. Brian, that's, you've got to talk that way. However, I fear he may have confused some of the audience, including possibly Andrew. Well, that's easy. Uh, with his uh, description of of um, Bepi Colombo's path to Mercury. He kept referring to its close encounters with Earth, Venus and Mercury, giving it boosts. Not sure about the one with Earth, but uh, the other encounters, especially the six with Mercury, are breaks, not boosts. Uh, He did mention slowing it down, but uh, kept saying the slingshots gave it boosts. Might be useful if he clarified this in the next episode. Yes, we're going to do that right now. Brian, explain yourself, Fred. <laughs> um, okay, so it's totally counterintuitive, but in order to get a spacecraft into the inner part of the solar system, you've got to speed it up. Um, you know, you'd think you just kind of let it go from Earth and drop it towards the centre. Um, but uh, the process of... Uh, you know the, these um, these uh, two, one encounter with the Earth, the two encounters uh, with Venus have actually given energy to the spacecraft uh, in terms of speeding it up to go into the inner solar system. Uh, but um, the, you know the, um, the 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 question is right on the money. I'm sorry. I'm I don't know whether you can hear that, Andrew, but I've just got. Uh, Noise on from a website that I was looking at. Oh, okay. No, didn't <laughs> I, hear it. Okay, good. Um, that's because I was going to, uh, you know, I was going to um, um, make the direction. I beg your pardon. I've forgotten the name of our 
uh, our, lis- our listener. Uh, Brian, Brian. Brian, I thought it was Brian. Yeah, I was going to say Brian, and I thought, no, I'm mixing it up. Brian, sorry about that. I apologise. Um, have a look at uh, the uh, ESA website on Bepi Colombo's trajectory, and you can see quite clearly that... Um, uh, you know, you, you probably look at the, um, you can look at the the numbers, but there is a lovely animation, which is why the music was playing in my ears there, uh, and I couldn't hear Andrew. Um, the, the animation shows certainly those uh, encounters with the planets Earth and Venus actually speed up the the spacecraft to 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 push it into an orbit, uh, essentially to to basically match the orbit of Mercury, uh, which, of course, has a much faster orbital speed than we have here on Earth because of Keplerian uh, mechanics. But you're, you're quite right that the encounters with Mercury itself are all about slowing it down to, mm. to, to bring it into, um, into the, the region where it will be captured by Mercury's gravity. So it's a complicated process. And thank you very much for picking me up on that because I think I oversimplified it. I probably am doing again, but I certainly did before. It's clear, though, uh, that if you have a look at those animations, then you can sort of see what's happening and see how these slingshots work. Uh, so you can, uh, yes, you're right, you can do it either way you can boost um, yeah, uh, you know the speed of the spacecraft or you can reduce it uh, and that's what is being done here certainly in the case of mercury okay so speeding up around earth and venus slowing down around mercury so that it can get into an orbit exactly that's right, right. all right so there you are brian <laughs> hopefully that uh, cleared the air and uh, thank you for uh, bringing that up and we'll move on to alistair smith's question Uh, Hi, Andrew and Fred. Um, Thanks for your reports and explanations that are presented in a manner that ordinary people can enjoy and understand. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, He's uh, asking about uh, accelerating expansion of the universe. We are told that after the Big Bang, there was an initial very rapid acceleration in expansion, followed by a deceleration of expansion and now a more moderate acceleration in expansion. Is that correct? On a recent Space Time podcast, Stuart Gary reported that the acceleration of the expansion of the universe varied depending on which direction you looked. Uh, it can be imagined that there are other Big Bangs forming other universes around our universe. Similarly, it can be imagined that other universes could be collapsing around us. These events would be deforming our universe. Could this explain the varying acceleration of expansion of our universe and therefore dark energy the answer is i think that it's possible to know uh, impossible to know sorry so uh, yeah well maybe it's impossible to know but fred's going to try and answer it anyway alistair so we'll see how we go uh yeah thanks very much for that um alistair i appreciated the uh question and um you you know you you quote, you quoted um stuart gary there and uh, the podcast suggesting that the expansion the acceleration of the expansion varies depending on which direction you look now this was something i hadn't heard about um so i chased that up not through stuart gary but just by looking for uh anisotropy of acceleration because anisotropy is the 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 big word that means 
different in different directions. Mm -hmm. Anything that's isotropic is the same in all directions, but if it's anisotropic, it's not. And that was the first I'd heard of it. But it comes about from a paper that was published last November uh, by a group of people, including scientists from the University of Oxford and some from Paris and Denmark, um, which is all about um, the they're presenting evidence for, as they call it, anisotropy of cosmic acceleration, the suggestion that the acceleration rate is different uh, depending on what direction you look in. Now, let's um, just backtrack for one second here because the expansion itself, as far as we can tell, is the same in all directions. Um, that is one of the, you know, it's one of the major observations that we make. When we look, we we believe that we are finding an expansion that is the same in all directions, more or less. Yeah. But um, if, but we know, also know that the expansion is accelerating. You can look back, you know, four or five billion years, and see that it was actually less then uh, in, in its acceleration. Uh, sorry, the, the expansion speed than it is now. Mm-hmm. But this was the first time I've seen the suggestion that the uh, the acceleration itself is not isotropic. So um, I looked at the paper, and it's quite interesting. Um, it's got lots of um, very complex calculations in. But what I did was I got in touch with a colleague and friend of mine who is one of uh, the world's leading cosmologists and said, so what about this? And he um, did respond. He said he's, he's still actually working through the paper, but he said it got off to a bad start because of some of the assumptions that were being made, um, in particular in terms of frames of reference and things of that sort. So I suspect... He's not convinced. Uh, I hope he'll get back to me with any further thoughts he has. Uh, I suspect he's not convinced, but I also think that the cosmological community in general is not convinced, and that's why we haven't heard of this paper until now, when it you know it was published in in November. So um, it seems like I mean this is you know something that often happens. You get uh, people who um, are looking for really small signatures in our understanding of the way the universe is behaving. Um, and, you know, um, I, I, for many years, worked for worked with a scientist uh, who had similar ideas about our galaxy expanding, um, which was certainly counter to common, you know, the, what was a, a accepted as knowledge then. And it turns out that the community was right uh, and, and he wasn't. Very interesting guy, but it was a great teacher as well he um he he um taught me about how you deal with data and how you try to avoid putting your preconceptions on it although in the end that turned out to to give a different answer from what he expected um, i think this might be the same too it's something where you're teasing information that might not really be there um very interesting stuff though and it's uh, you know it's challenging you you need people coming along with this kind of thing in order to challenge the the global view that we have yeah. uh, it's how science progresses um just going back to alistair's original uh, uh, email um 
that uh, so uh, Alistair says the Big Bang there was very rapid acceleration in expansion that's what we call the period of inflation uh, followed by a deceleration of expansion that's correct and now the more moderate expansion in acceleration that is actually exactly what the the world view is at the moment um, we still don't understand the, the the mechanism that causes the expansion of the universe we call it dark energy but we don't really know what it is mm. but I do think that. Uh, it, it, you know, we we need to be cautious in looking at things like um, the acceleration varying on which direction you look in. It seems like a, at the moment, it seems like a very uh, tenuous conclusion to be drawing, particularly when the cosmological community uh, seems to disagree. Okay, so what we're saying is that the paper may be slightly off the mark, and that the expansion of the universe is isotropic. Uh, it, as far as we know at the moment, that's yeah. right. But uh, look, uh, Alistair's last sentence is interesting. He says, I think it's impossible to know whether, you know, things like other universes could be varying. That's certainly true at the moment. We're not looking at ideas like that. But it may well be that future observations reveal that there is an anisotropy, that the, the universe is not is not expand, accelerating the same everywhere. And then we've really got to think about that and, um, and work out what it means. Uh, and, yeah, all bets will be on the table at that time. Indeed they will. Uh, Alistair, thank you for your question. Uh, created some... Uh, fascinating discussion uh, now I will remind people not to forget which is the same thing as reminding them to uh, go to the spa- <laughs> go to the space nuts shop on our um, bytes.com website because all our goodies are there uh, you can go to the bookshelf and check out all these publications oh by the way thank you to everyone who's already bought a copy of the Tyrannian Enigma and uh, I've already had a couple of people message me back saying they loved it and that they uh, did not pick the twist at the end, which is great. <laughs> well done, Andrew. Um, uh, and I, I, I really appreciate the, um, um, the fact that you have enjoyed the story and got a big kick out of it, so fantastic. Uh, while you're at uh, the shop, you can also um, get a T-shirt or a polo shirt or a cup or a mug or a cap, uh, anything you... Um, uh, desire as a as a supporter of Space Nuts, you can find at bytes.com slash Space Nuts. That's B-I-T-E-S-Z.com. I don't know why we spell it that way. Somebody probably took the real stuff. Uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks for um, supporting Space Nuts in whatever form, uh, most particularly listening to us, which still... After 199 episodes, we find extraordinary. We do. It is one of the wonders of the universe, Fred. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Um, Fred, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to your company on episode 200. 200. We've got to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't told me about them yet. Well, we, we were hoping to do something big for episode 200, but um, unfortunately um, this, this pandemic got in the way. Yeah, that's right. It restricted our movements. But uh, we will still have a great time. We'll figure something out. There might be, um, I don't know, we, we'll work something out. <laughs> Fly by the seat of our pants as we always as do. As we always do. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Fred, thank you so much. We'll catch you again next week. Sounds great, Andrew. Take care. All the best. Look after yourself and see you soon. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, half of the uh, team here at 
well, one third of the team. I keep forgetting Hugh. Sorry, Hugh, the producer. Um, but yeah, part of the uh, the massive team that is Space Nuts. And from me, Andrew Dunkley. Thanks for your company. Catch you next time. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.